We're in Ephesians chapter 6, as I said earlier, verses 5 through 9, continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. So if you're just joining us, well, we're almost finished, actually, now that I think about it. If you're just joining us in Ephesians, we're almost done with Ephesians. But uh, we're in, in chapter 6, and as I said at the outset, if you ha- don't have a Bible and would like to grab the one in front of you there, I think you'll find this on page, uh, what did I say, 679? 979. Toward the end, you'll find it there. Title of this message, Christians in the Workplace. And so let's look together in Ephesians 6, and I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we just give attention to His voice and reverence to His authority in it. Reading out of the English Standard Version, listen to the Word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you now, as always, for your word. It is true and living and active. It is powerful. It is able to cut to the very center of our being and discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And We pray, Lord, that you would use it for that purpose today. As we open up our hearts and our ears to hear from you, we pray you would speak in the way that we need to hear and the way we need to be challenged and changed. So we invited you to speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. God, I pray now, as always, you'd move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument to communicate today. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, in recent weeks, we've been stepping through these words of instruction that Paul's given uh, regarding how our response to the grace of God is to be lived out in the home environment. As I've said repeatedly, really the second half of Ephesians is really about how our response to the grace of God is to be lived out generally. So in the world, in the church, and kind of everywhere we live and move, Um, We, as people who have received grace, ought to live in response to that grace, and we ought to be gracious in the way that we live. It's transformational, that's the way it's intended to be, and it is at every dimension of life. And so uh, he's he's been talking about how that's to be lived out in the home environment, specifically in relationships between wives and husbands, children and parents, and now bond servants and masters. And in that first century culture, by and large, more often than not, bond servants were part of a household. And so this is really one body of instruction here that we're uh, reading about. Um, and in fact, it's uh, interesting to note that Paul is really speaking to the same person in a household when he says, husbands, fathers, masters. That instruction is to the same individual in any particular house in those different roles. 
But in our contemporary culture, we really don't have a direct parallel to this bond-servant-master relationship. We can make application of the principles here, and hopefully we will today find something relevant to us. But we don't have a direct parallel necessarily. But there are helpful principles that we could apply in our work relationships and really actually in other relationships that just involve authority and submission. And I'd say, in fact, that there's a greater degree of authority uh, that somebody has and the greater degree of submission it requires to that authority, perhaps the more relevant some of this would be because in the master-slave relationship, the master was absolutely authoritative. But as I said, it does apply in some ways to our work, work relationships, and that's kind of the angle I want to look at today. And it's a good thing that it applies or or that there are scriptures that speak directly to those relationships because work is a huge part of our lives by design and just by necessity, right? You have to work to live. We can actually do it um, in fewer hours than most of humans through human history have been able to do. Uh, It's been the probably the norm among human beings to work from sunup to sundown in most cultures throughout most of history, I would say. We have a whole lot more leisure now than we have had um, at other times and places in history. In fact, more leisure than lots of people do right now, today, in other parts of the world. But it's still a huge part of our lives. We spend a a high percentage of our waking hours getting ready for work, going to work, and at work. And in some cases, a greater percentage than we wish we would worrying about work after we get home from work, right? But it really is a a significant part of our lives, and that's the way God designed it. You remember in uh, our series from Genesis 1 and 2 back at the beginning of the year, work was part of God's good creation in the beginning. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't an evil that came as a result of sin. Before there was sin in the world, God gave man work to do. It's good It went bad, was kind of spoiled, if you will, by the entry of sin into the world. But intrinsically, inherently, it was a good thing. But having gone bad, we experience work as not good in a a lot of times in a lot of different ways. You don't have to say amen to that, but I know that's probably true. And virtually everyone has had work relationships specifically, that are difficult, dreadful sometimes, uh, sour, even toxic. Work relationships um, that make people want to find other work. And as I said, in our setting, we really have that privilege and that freedom we can actually Uh, find an escape from those tremendously adverse situations. In the case of the first century slave here that Paul is writing to, no such case. However bad it was, that's how bad it was going to be. And he had no uh, power to change that. But again, work was part of God's original design, part of his good creation, corrupted by sin, but part of what God plans to redeem and restore like everything else. You remember that the sin spoiled everything 
And God set about immediately a plan to redeem and restore everything. And he'll make it all new. There really is a happily ever after, and it is not a fairy tale. But we, as his redeemed people, as citizens and subjects of his kingdom, we participate with him in that redemptive and restorative work. That's part of what we are called to do on this earth, uh, praying that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we work to that end and that direction. You may remember, uh, if you were here for that series earlier in the year, um, when, I, when I preached about work and productivity, I shared this quote from an author named Amy Sherman who wrote a book called Kingdom Calling. But she said, our gracious Heavenly Father desires, to deploy, desires us to deploy our time, talents, and treasure to offer others foretastes of the coming kingdom. So when we, th- we think about work through those redemptive lenses, we bring our talents, our time, the resources God has given us, and we offer them to the small part of the world he's placed us in in a way that gives people a foretaste of his glorious kingdom to come. His glorious kingdom that is here and is coming to a greater degree. And so I, I use the analogy of, at that time as like when you go to the food court at the mall and uh, they off, offer little samples, somebody's standing out there and they offer you a little you know, piece of teriyaki chicken or whatever it is with a toothpick in it. And I don't know if they do that anymore. I don't go to the mall anymore by and large. But, um, but you know, you get a foretaste. Here, here's a little sample. There's a whole lot more for you at the counter. And what, what Amy Sherman suggests is that in our work, we, we can do our work and we can relate with people in a way that offers foretastes of the kingdom. Here's a little glimpse of the Lord Jesus. Here's how good he is. There's more waiting for you at the counter. So how does that apply to our work relationships here and now? Well, the typical relationship between master and slave would have been characterized. And I say the typical one. This wouldn't have been true all the time, certainly. But I think it's safe to say the typical relationship would have been characterized by fear and intimidation, maybe even abuse on the part of the master. And it would produce, on the other hand, resentment and reluctance, resistance on the part of the bondservant or the slave. That would have been typical of that work relationship. But what Paul reminds us of and really enlightens those first century believers of is a completely It's a complete paradigm shift for them to have received this news for the first time. But Jesus, Paul tells us Jesus is our true master. And he has a different set of standards and expectations for how Christian employees and employers conduct their work and their work relationships. That's what I want to look at today. Uh, This passage from the vantage point of employees and employers, and we'll do it as briefly as we're able, uh, as briefly as I'm able. You would be able to do it briefer, I'm sure. <laughs> but point number one, employees, the word to employees, do excellent work with a sincere heart. 
This is uh, a, an overgeneralization and an, and, uh, and an overly uh, quick treatment of this. For sure, there's lots else that could be said about it. But this is kind of the heart of the message to uh, those who are the employees. Verse, verse 5, you see, is addressed to bond servants in the ESV. You may be looking at a translation that says slaves, and that's an appropriate translation, and some would say a better translation. The word uh, bond servant is the Greek word, comes from the Greek word doulos. You may have heard that if you're a student of the Bible before. It's not particularly important that you know that word. It just may be a familiar one that you've heard sometimes when the Bible, some translations will use uh, the word bond servants as opposed to servants because in the Greek language there was doulos and there was diakonos, the word from which we get deacon. They're servants of kind of a different sort. But here the word is doulos, and um, some would enter that position voluntarily. Others would be forced into it by compulsion. But either way, a doulos was a slave. It's a fitting word for it. We might be misled if we think of American slavery and the pictures we have of that with hundreds and hundreds of slaves on a plantation or whatever. That's not necessarily the way that would have looked. As I said, it's really more of a household arrangement in first century Greco-Roman culture. But regardless of how you slice it, a bondservant was not a free person. He was the property of the master, and he did whatever the master told him. And the master could decide whether to treat his bondservants humanely to some degree or mercilessly or anywhere in between. That was, that was the master's right to do that. And some of the things that masters did to slaves were just horrific because uh, some would treat their slaves as uh, inhuman, really. So you get the sense here, just in, again, if you just read this in, pass, in passing, in the way, if you don't know any of that background information, but just the tone it has, both in what he says to bond servants to do and not to do, and what he says to masters not to do, especially, you get the sense here that the general expectation was the slave did not think of his master with a warm fondness. I said in my newsletter article that went out a couple days ago, you know, there weren't like employee appreciation days or boss's day or uh, the lists of the hundred best masters to work for in Ephesus or that kind of thing like we have now. No sense of that whatsoever. That by the, the default assumption, you would be safe to assume that this was not a warm relationship and a bondservant didn't have necessarily any fondness in his heart. But Paul reminds them the paradigm shift for the Christian in that setting is to the bondservant, Paul says, Christ is their master. And if you noticed in these few short verses, he says in every verse to the bondservant that it is Christ who is their master. In verse 5, he tells them uh, to obey as you would Christ. In verse 6, uh, not to try to please people, but as bondservants of Christ. In verse 7, rendering service to the Lord and not to man. And then in verse 8, knowing that the reward you'll receive, you'll receive 
from the Lord. That the perspective that the Christian employee is to take on, like the Christian bondservant, is that the real master is Christ himself. That he's the boss, so to speak. And that's not just a metaphor, okay? So here's, here's the risk for us, is that we think that's just a helpful illustration of something. Yeah, if, we think of, if, I, think about, if I think about it that way, I can get through, uh, you know, a bad day, a hard situation, or whatever. It's not just a nice metaphor. Paul is reminding us of something real. Christ is Lord. Right now, Christ is a king, and he has a kingdom and he rules over all, and he has, he has made us uh, citizens of that kingdom, but also subjects. The New Testament speaks frequently of the Christian as bondservants of Christ. And in fact, there's, uh, I don't know, perhaps no, no more common title of Christ besides Christ... <laughs> There's no, there's no other title more common than Lord. So common, in fact, we just we refer to him as the Lord, right? We, we call Jesus Lord all the time. And Lord and Master are the same word in this passage. And so he's reminding them that's real. It's, not just a, it's just not a metaphor. Christ is really Master, and we, and we are called... Uh, out of darkness and into the light and translated into his kingdom, we become subjects of his, willing subjects, who gladly give ourselves to his service and obey him above all. And as the true master, here's the rub. Here's the rub for some of us along the way. As the true master, Jesus has given you as an employee the assignment to serve a particular master, if you will. He's given you the assignment to serve the boss that you are serving. I, w- I want to point out here, again, I'm, I, I think I'm saying something not just that is, what, what will I hope be an, a helpful illustration, but something that is just true about Christ and his relationship to the world and humanity. Jesus said, you remember in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. Do you remember that? And he goes on to say, he uses that to say, you can't serve God and money. Well, he's drawn from something here because a master has absolute authority. And so you can't be subject to two different masters. And yet, he's writing to people who now have an earthly master and an heavenly master. And they understand it in a very real sense. In fact, one of the uh, sort of conflicts they were trying to work out in the early church was just how are we to understand this relationship now? As slaves and masters, because we're all one and equal at the foot of the cross, how are we to understand how this works now? Well, he's the real master. But he's given you the assignment to work as the servant of some earthly master if you're an employee working for an employer. 
So even if you've got the bad boss, quote unquote, that I wrote about in the newsletter, even if right now that's who you work for, take it as Christ's assignment. The true master has assigned you to that service. And so Jesus says, in a manner of speaking, John, I have an assignment for you. I want you to go serve Mr. Brown. Do whatever he tells you to do. Meet the needs that Mr. Brown has. John says, Mr. Brown, he's the worst. Nobody, nobody likes to work for that guy. He is such a pompous jerk. Jesus, I thought you loved me. And he says, I do. I love him too. You don't have any idea what I know about Mr. Brown that has made him the sourpuss that he is. That he's one of my lost sheep that doesn't even know yet that he's part of the fold. And I love him, and you are going to be the one to show him that love. And so, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Be humble, gentle, patient, forbearing. Put away all bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, and clamor. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, just as I forgave you. Do you remember those phrases out of Ephesians 4? And so he says, you go serve crotchety old Mr. Brown that way. Now that is far easier said than done and I have worked for my own Mr. Browns I would tell you stories if we had more time but we don't and you don't really need to hear them but what you do need to hear is that Christ your master has appointed you to the service of the one in whose employ you work and so serve as his ambassador in all those ways that are appropriate for living in response to the grace that he has shown to you. Number two, employers. The word to employers, to bosses, is treat people with dignity and respect. That's really a little bit too generalized and uh, almost, I don't know if cliche, but, uh, but it maybe sounds a little bit trite. But I think that's the message here. As he says in verse 9 to masters, do the same to them, that is, um, your posture needs to change. You know, as the bondservant is giving something to the master in a different way, not, not working with resentment uh, as eye-pleasers, men-pleasers, and so forth, but giving something uh, more to the master because of what Christ has called him to. So the master is to give some of what he has the right to do and treat his bondservants differently. Treat his employees, if you will, differently. His word to the masters is, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Stop your threatening. It's an interesting assumption there, isn't it, that Paul, writing to masters generally, could just assume if you're a master, you're probably threatening because that's what they do. 
Let them know who's in charge. Make sure they feel small or at least smaller than you, etc. By default, the masters rule by threats. But Paul says, stop. Both of you serve the same master in heaven and there's no partiality with him. I probably can't communicate adequately, nor can I probably understand completely how radical of, a, of a, a message this is in the first century. Paul did not uh, suggest in any way that Christians ought to dismantle the institutions that were in place in the first century. You know, that's the message kind of in our day is that certain, uh, really all of our institutions need to be dismantled and torn down and so forth. Paul did not say that, but he did anticipate that if Christians lived truly in a manner worthy of the gospel, in, in every sphere of society, in the institution of family, in the workplace and sort of in the context of that institution of slavery, if you will, and uh, even in relationship to the government, if they lived in a manner worthy of the gospel, while they didn't dismantle institutions, those institutions would be transformed. That is certainly what's anticipated by this message, and it is what has come to pass in Western civilization, I would say. It's, uh, again, a different, a far different message for a different day. But my point there is just to say, when he tells masters to stop your threatening, that's like kind of radical because what masters do is threaten. How do you rule by anything other than force and intimidation? But he's calling them to a different perspective, a different posture, a different relationship because the master is no better than the slave. There's no partiality with him. We know uh, perhaps better, at least we, we, we would assert or state the truth that no person is better than any other. But you know the reality is very often there are people who live like they are better than others. And there are people who feel like they are lesser than others. And Paul reminds them that in Christ there is no partiality. It doesn't mean that there aren't distinctions in authority. You see, he doesn't dismantle the authority that a master has over a bondservant. Just like he doesn't dismantle the authority that a husband has over his household or a father. But the nature of that authority and the way that it's exercised and the relationship between the one in authority and the one and submission is radically changed by the gospel. I would say, I mean, again, there may be a few here today who are employers, supervisors, managers, or whatever. You have people who work under your authority. And probably in most cases, nobody rules with the kind of iron fist that a first century master might have done. However... I would say there are uh, work is another one of those situations where a lot of a lot of what we learn about how to 
work, how to lead, how to manage, and so forth. Um, it's like I said, a lot of our parenting, we don't learn from the Bible, even as Bible-believing Christians, we learn from the way we were parented. Even just unconsciously, we just, we just begin to imitate what we observed and received all those years. There are very similar things are true in the workplace. And there are Christians who get into places of authority and they act like a Mr. Brown. In spite of what they go and teach in Sunday school on Sunday morning, in spite of what they sing in their worship songs, they live very differently in relationship to people in their workplace than they do on Sunday morning in church. And so the simple message might need to resonate in the ears of some. Treat people with dig dignity and respect as real equals before the cross. You know, I was reminded as I was thinking about this message, and I'll conclude here. When I was in uh, college, I was in Army ROTC a couple of years, and uh, there were cadets had rank like you do in the Army you know, or any military branch. Senior classmen were the highest-ranking cadets. And so um, they were the ones that were sort of made up the officer corps. Well, when I was in Army ROTC, I had fraternity brothers who were in the officer cadet corps, cadet officer corps. So when we were in uniform, I saluted them, and they gave me orders, and I obeyed them. And then on Friday night, we were hanging out, studying, you know, good, doing good deeds together. But, um, but the point is, you know, it was every, everybody understood that uh, th those were our assignments and there were, those were our roles. We didn't have any problem switching between the two. Exercising authority where we were called to exercise and obeying authority where we were called to obey in it and yet treating each other as equal and brothers, we call them in the fraternity. Which I don't commend to you, by the way, in any respect, but uh, part of my story. But I'd say there's something helpful there in the way that we understand uh, this text and our relationship to people in the workplace and even our relationship to authority, either because we carry it or because we have to submit to it or both. That we can treat people as brothers before the cross, equals before the cross, and yet exercise and respect authority in a meaningful way, in an effective way without those being at odds with one another. So however that would challenge you and me, let's receive it today and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we who were lost have been found, that we are part of the fold, that we have been made part of your family and citizens subjects of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us more and more to live as ambassadors wherever you've placed us, that Jesus might be revealed, 
that people might discover something of the love that he has for the world and for them specifically, that they would come to know him personally. Or that even those looking on may be changed by our example, even when the Mr. Browns of the world are not. Maybe Mr. Brown continues to be Mr. Brownie, but others may see our humility and our gentleness and our patience, our sincerity with which we do our work and the excellence with which we do it, and that they might be the one reached by the message that conveys and then the message we have opportunity to utter. Lead us and guide us in all of those ways to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.